parents of children, kindergarten to fifth grade, who have registered your kids for classes this, this morning, you can send them now with their teachers to their classes. The rest of you, would you please open your Bibles again to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter four this morning and beginning in verse one. Genesis chapter four, verse one. Please listen as I read. This is God's word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell, The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know, am am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in what we have just sung, that for those of us in Christ, our sin has been paid for. We are righteous in your sight, and so when we approach you now in your word, we approach you as those who are loved and who are welcome. And God, we are eager for your voice. We, we know that we need to hear from you. We're aware of our dependence on you all the time, but especially now, we know that, that unless you come and unless you work, we will go away unchanged. But this is your living word, and here you speak, and so we want to hear from you. We want your word to change us, and so come by your spirit, work powerfully in our hearts and lives, and make us more like your son, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, we're continuing our series this morning on key issues, this look we're taking at these early chapters of Genesis, these chapters from which 
the whole story of the Bible and the whole of human life proceed. And we're looking at questions people in every generation have had to grapple with anew. We've looked at human equality, this idea that every human being is my equal because he or she is made in the image of God. We've looked at the sanctity of human life, uh, born or unborn. We've looked at God's good purpose for gender and sexuality, for marriage, last week for family. And today we look at God's design for society, for our human relationships outside of our relationships of husband and wife, outside of parent-child, our relationships that are actually the great majority of our relationships with, with everybody else. What do we owe each other? You're surrounded this morning by people. They're six feet away, but they're there. What does God expect of you in relation to them? What does God expect of you in relation to the the people behind you in the drive-thru at Starbucks this morning? What does God expect of you in relation to your next-door neighbors? What do we owe each other? Now, we're going to look at this morning at the first relationship in human history that wasn't husband-wife, it wasn't parent-child. We're looking at the first brothers, Cain and Abel. But before we get to them, we need to take a step back because we have passed right over one of the continental divides of the Bible. Do you guys know what a continental divide is? Do you remember your middle school geography? A continental divide is the point at which on one side, all the rivers flow one way, and on the other, they all flow the other way, right? So on the eastern side of the Rocky Mountains, all the rivers flow to the Mississippi. On the western side, they all flow to the Pacific. It's that high point, the point at which everything reverses flow. In chapter two, Genesis chapter two, where we were last week, everything was working according to God's design, according to his intent. It was good, it was very good. And and when we get to chapter four, which we're looking at today, things are no longer good. They're actually going from bad to worse. What happened? Well, what happened is we passed over the great divide, Genesis chapter three, the fall of humanity. Into the garden has come the serpent, the tempter, Satan, and he has persuaded Adam and Eve that all evidence to the contrary, God is not truly good. He's holding out on them. There's there's joy for them if they would just take and eat of the one fruit that God forbade. And so, of course, they did. And into the world has come sin and shame and fear. And the question we have as we approach Genesis 4 is, what is life like now? We've seen how good it is to live in the garden, in right relationship with God. What's it like to live outside the garden, estranged from God? This passage is here to show us what sin has done in our relationships, what it's done to us together, but also to point us to what a good God, by grace, makes possible. There are four truths we need to see, and the first is a heart estranged from God produces hatred toward others. A heart estranged from God produces hatred toward others. At at first, everything in the garden seems surprisingly fine. Our first impression, actually, is of God's kindness to Adam and Eve, because you'll remember from last week that God had said to Adam and Eve that his his commission to them, his, his good plan for them, was that they would be fruitful and multiply. But that was before the fall, and now we're wondering, well, Is God going to abandon that project? But the first thing we see is that no, even though Adam and Eve have sinned, God is still making them fruitful and multiplying them. They have sons, Cain and Abel. 
And Eve recognizes that this is an expression of God's kindness. You can see in verse one, she says, when Cain is born, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And God's intention for his people as they multiply was to fill the earth and subdue it, to work the ground and to care for animals. And that's what we see, isn't it? Cain is a worker of the ground. Abel is a shepherd. God's, God's will for his people was to, to fill the earth with his image and his glory. And to our surprise, we find Cain and Abel, even outside the garden, even after the fall, worshiping. Don't we? They, they bring, Cain brings to God an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brings his firstborn of his flock. Everything seems actually much better than we would have guessed until about halfway through verse four. This is what it says. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the question most people have when they come to that, when they read it, is, is what was wrong with Cain's offering? Some people have, have guessed, well, maybe God just prefers meat to vegetables, but there's no indication of that in the passage. Others have, have noticed insightfully that Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. He brings God his first and his best. And there's, there's something to that. But there's, there's an even bigger clue in the text. Because does Moses say, Moses who wrote this, does he say that God just had no regard for Cain's offering? Look at it again. It says, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The problem with Cain's offering was Cain. And what was wrong with him? Well, his reaction to God's disapproval gives it away. You could imagine two reactions a person could have to being disapproved of by God. One would be grief and remorse and repentance to say, God, show me what I'm doing wrong so I can please you. But what's Cain's reaction? Anger. God, I deserve your regard. I have made my offering, I've done my part, and it's unjust of you to have no regard for it, to not approve of me. The problem is you, God. What's wrong with Cain? It's pride. He thinks that God owes him. He has brought an offering to God, but what he's really worshiping is himself. This is the characteristic posture of the human heart outside the garden, estranged from God, pride thinking great thoughts of myself and low thoughts of God, meditating on what God owes me, not on what I owe God, putting myself at the center of life, expecting everything to revolve around me, making myself the king or queen and expecting everyone else to serve me. Now, we wouldn't say that out loud, but pride is lurking in every one of our hearts, just as it was in Cain's. And one way to see that is to examine to what extent anger is present in your life. Now, is all anger rooted in pride? No, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but anger is often rooted in pride. For example, a coworker is promoted over you, and you're not just disappointed. You begin to grumble against your boss and take secret pleasure when things don't go great for the guy who got the promotion because you believe in your heart you deserved it. Or you're running late to an appointment and you begin slamming the steering wheel and honking the horn at every car that merges in front of you or stops at a yellow light when they probably could have made it through because they're gonna make you late and if you're late, you're gonna look bad and you deserve to look good. Or you come home from a long and a difficult day 
and within five minutes, you're snapping at your kids for asking you to play with them or read them a book or make dinner because don't they know that you deserve a break? Or, or maybe you are a kid. Maybe you're one of the young men and women that are in this room and sometimes you want to turn with your brother's truck or his football and he won't give you one so you just haul back and slug him because you deserve a turn. Pride. It's in every one of our hearts. And where does it lead? Does it just stay kind of against God? No, it turns us against others because they're no longer people we're here to serve. They're the competition. Where did pride lead Cain? Did his anger stay focused on God only? No, because while God had no regard for Cain and his offering, for Abel and his offering, God did have regard. And so Cain's pride is already tilting him towards hatred. But see again the kindness of God. God intervenes. He warns him. He gives him a way out. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain is not yet beyond hope but he's teetering on the precipice of pride becoming hatred, becoming murder. And God appeals to him, you can still be accepted. Repent, do well, turn to me, see your danger. Sin is crouching, it's preparing to pounce, it's ready to devour you. Say no, Cain, come to me. Don't you love that God is like that? He is so good to warn us when we're toying with sin, so good to give us a way of escape. But such is Cain's pride that he won't listen even to God. His pride becomes hatred and his hatred becomes murder. A proud heart can't love. Love requires thinking about what we owe others, not what they owe us. Love requires counting others more worthy of service than ourselves. A proud heart, a heart estranged from God, produces hatred toward others. That's the first truth we see. But God also points us in this passage to another way to live. So this is the second truth. God's intention for human relationships is love. God's intention for human relationships is love. After Cain kills Abel, God confronts him. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And on one level, the answer to Cain's question is surely no. He's not responsible for keeping his brother, for knowing where he is at all times, for protecting him day and night. He's not his keeper. But in asking that question, Cain is evading what he knows. He's not his brother's keeper, but he's his brother's something. There's something that he owes his brother. Look again at what God asked him. He says, where is Abel your brother? You're not his keeper but you are his brother. He, like you, is a son of Adam. He, like you, is made in my image. There's a way you ought to have been to him for no reason other than that. This passage works differently than every passage we've looked at so far in Genesis. Every other passage we've looked at comes before the fall. And in it we see the beauty and the goodness of God's design and his intention before sin came in and distorted it. This passage shows us what human relationships are like after sin has come and distorted them, and we're left asking, how should it have been? 
What, what should the first brothers have been like in the garden? What is God's intention for human relationships? And the simple answer to that is God's intention is love. God doesn't lay out the full scope of that here, but Genesis is the first of five books we call the law, and the law is all about how to love. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the law is, and he famously responded in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. In other words, the whole law is God's instruction about how to be people of love. Love for God and love for each other. And Jesus summarizes the love we owe each other with a quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what do we owe each other? To love one another as we love ourselves, to recognize in one another the image of God, the same image we're created in, and to want for others what we want for ourselves. And it goes beyond just doing no harm. Part of loving our neighbors as ourselves is not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not lying, but there are positive responsibilities as well. So for example, Jesus had quoted Leviticus 19, verse 18. If you just look earlier in that chapter, Leviticus 19, verse 9, God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Gleanings were the grain that had fallen to the ground during the harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. So love isn't just not stealing. Love is refusing to be so focused on making money that you neglect to share with those who don't have enough. If you were the poor or the sojourner, you would want those who have enough money to own their own land to leave something for you to live on too. And so love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do that for them. When you're hungry, you feed yourself. So love your neighbor as you love yourself. But that can be an overwhelming call. There are seven billion people in the world. Am I to love each one as I love myself and have a job and care for my family? Fortunately, God gives us some help in knowing where to focus. God elevates two priorities for his people, two ways of bringing focus to where we ought to direct our love, our spiritual family and our vulnerable neighbor. So first, our spiritual family. God tells his people they ought to have a distinctive concern for those who also belong to the people of God. So you could look, for example, at Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. God says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, and brother there doesn't mean in your biological family, it means another one of the people of Israel. If one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. We bear a particular responsibility to our spiritual family, those of the people of God, which today corresponds to other Christians, especially those of this local church. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. So in the early chapters of Acts, you see that 
The church cared for one another. They didn't, they didn't hold their possessions as though they strictly belonged to themselves, but as anyone had need, they would sell their possessions and share so that everyone had enough. And, and, and that is how God intends his people to be, to care for one another as a spiritual family, to open our hands, to share what we have, but our care isn't simply material. And you can see that earlier in Galatians, Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What, what fulfills the law of Christ? We bear one another's burdens. We care for one another spiritually. We help one another not go, not go into sin. We help one another follow God. We have a particular responsibility to love our spiritual family. And secondly, for our vulnerable neighbor. So in the book of Exodus, chapter 22, verses 21 and 22, God says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. God tells his people to take particular care with those who are in vulnerable positions. Widows and orphans, they had lost their breadwinner. They needed other people to provide for them and protect them. And God includes in that care sojourners, immigrants, those who aren't Israelites but had come to live in Israel, in their towns. They, they maybe didn't know the language. They, they didn't have any family connections to help them find work or get what they need. And God's people were to care for them, not because they were family, but because they were vulnerable and because they were right here. You could do something for them. The Roman Emperor Julian, who was a pagan, not a Christian emperor, he was incredibly frustrated by the spread of Christianity in the empire. And this is one of the things he complained about. He said, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, that's what he called Christians, he called them godless because they didn't worship the Roman gods, the godless Galileans cared not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. T today, people who don't even consider themselves Christians take it for granted that we as a society should do something for the most vulnerable among us. But that hasn't been the assumption of every society. It wasn't the assumption of Rome. That idea emerged from here, from the words of a God who cares for the poor and wants his people to be like him. Now you know, if you've been coming, this series isn't about the election, but we have the election in view. And one of the values you should hold as you consider your vote, as you consider your political engagement, is a concern for the poor and the sojourner, the immigrant. And I don't at all mean to nudge you towards a particular party. You might think the best way to care for the poor is through government action. You might think the best way to care for the poor is through grassroots, local engagement. You might think the best way to care for immigrants comes from this end of the spectrum. You might think it comes from this end of the spectrum. The question is, are you thinking about them and not just yourself as you think about how to vote and how to be involved? And is your care for them apparent not just in how you vote, but in how you live? and what you do with the resources God has entrusted to you. We can't do everything for everyone, but we can do something for one another, for our spiritual family, and for our neighbors and coworkers and unbelieving relatives in need, our vulnerable neighbor. So we've seen that God's intention for relationships is love, but we've also seen that within each one of us lurks pride that would lead to hate. And that's serious because thirdly, 
Hatred toward others leads to God's judgment. Hatred toward others leads to God's judgment. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Remember that Cain's flippant answer to God was, am I my brother's keeper? And God says to him, no, I'm your brother's keeper. And now because of what you've done, I'm your brother's avenger. His blood is crying to me from the ground. His blood is crying for justice, for judgment. And God passes that. He curses Cain. But we'd we'd never do anything like Cain did, would we? Anger, sure. Hatred, maybe. But we'd never do anything like this. Nothing that would provoke God's judgment, right? Do you remember what Jesus said early in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. How seriously does God take anger? How seriously does he take it when we lash out at our kids, when they're not getting with the program of, I am most important? How seriously does he take it when we quietly sabotage a coworker who has the job we think we deserve? How seriously does he take it when we show utter contempt for people who have different political opinions than we do? One of the worst forms of hate is indifference. How seriously does God take it when we see a need and we do nothing at all? If this is the whole picture, every one of us is in trouble. Pride is the default setting of the human heart. Pride leads to anger and hatred, which in God's eyes is already deserving of judgment. His intention for us is love that treats our neighbor as ourselves, but our pride makes us want to be most important. Is there any hope? With God, always. Finally, a heart reconciled to God through Christ produces love. A heart reconciled to God through Christ produces love. As dark a picture as this passage paints of life outside the garden, there is a ray of hope. Two, actually. The first is that even here, God's judgment is mingled with mercy. Cain says to God, if you make me a wanderer on the earth, someone is going to kill me. And remember, this is the second generation of humanity. Everyone Cain meets is going to know him. Everyone Cain meets will know what he did. He says, someone is going to kill me, and God says, Not so. God could have said to him, that's what you deserve. Go your way. But God says, not so. He puts a mark of protection on Cain, on the murderer. Even though Cain is unrepentant, he's still proud, he's still only concerned for himself, God shows mercy. And if God has mercy for Cain, God has mercy for you. But there's something even better here. This story takes place under the fall but it also takes place under a promise. In Genesis 3, even in the midst of his judgment on Adam and Eve, God promised that a child would come from their family who would crush the head of the serpent. You could imagine Eve, pregnant with Cain, wondering, is this the child that will deliver us? And the answer is no. Cain did not crush the serpent. Cain gave himself over to the serpent and to sin, and he set a pattern for his children after him. If you read the, if you read the rest of Genesis 4, the line of Cain just goes from bad to worse. But there was another line. 
Abel died, but God gave Eve another son, Seth. And Seth's family was not like Cain's. Verse 26 says, they called upon the name of the Lord. And into that family was born Noah, a righteous man, and Abraham, who trusted God, and David, the man after God's own heart, and another man was born in that line, who like Abel offered to God what was pleasing to him, and he did it perfectly. Like Abel, he called himself a shepherd. Like Abel, he was unjustly killed by those who should have loved him, but where Abel's blood cried out for judgment, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word, the book of Hebrews tells us. It doesn't speak judgment, it speaks forgiveness and hope and reconciliation. Jesus always loved God and his neighbor. He alone deserved God's blessing, but on the cross, he took the curse we deserve so that in him we can be undeservedly blessed. Everyone who repents of sin, who turns from pride and anger and hatred and trusts in him is forgiven and brought back into a right relationship with God. We get to come back into the garden. And those he welcomes back, he changes. He gives new hearts, hearts that are no longer gripped by pride because they have seen the glory and majesty of God and now he's in the center and he's on the throne and having been humbled, they're able to love. This is how the Apostle John says it, 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know, now listen, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. What's the sign of having new life from God? It's love. The new heart God gives loves. I don't know anyone who thinks there is sufficient love in society right now. We all lament the incivility of our public life, the contempt, the quarreling, the neglect of the vulnerable, born and unborn. We want it to be different. The only power that will do that is the power of God through the gospel, changing hearts. Let it start with us. Admit to God that the problem is not out there, it's in here. There is something in each heart that, if unchecked, would lead to hatred and murder. Then once you've admitted that you're a sinner, see that God loves sinners. He sent his son to bring us back to him. God is love, and he gives new hearts that love like he does. And finally, pray for God to give you eyes to see his image in the people around you, whether they believe what you believe or not, and the grace to move towards them in compassion, counting them as worthy of love as you are. Estrangement from God produces hatred, but reconciliation to God produces love. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for every word in the Bible, the words that warn us and the words that comfort us, the warnings that say sin is a predator seeking to devour. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it and promises like the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We need both. 
God. And so I pray that you would help us to be sobered by the reality of pride. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to flee from pride. Help us to flee from anger. Help us to repent of broken relationships and our part in them. Flee to you, but God also comfort us with the reality of the gospel. And as we consider Christ, who when reviled did not revile in return, as we, consi- as we consider his love, his dying love for us, help us to become people of love like he was. Give us his compassion. Give us his love for enemies. Give us his love for the vulnerable. Give us his love for the church. God, I pray that you would use us, you would use Crossway in this community as a beacon, God, that as people see the difference the gospel makes, that they would be drawn to praise and trust in you. So God, work in us, make us people of love, being transformed in the image of your son, in whose name we pray, amen.